Well, grab your Bibles, Genesis 37. We um, are again looking at uh, our daily reading through the Bible. Um, I had to assure someone uh, just before service um, who they, they haven't looked ahead. Uh, so we will be finishing, I believe, Genesis this week, uh, going into Exodus. And they were wondering, well, after Exodus, what are we reading? And I said, we're going to do, we're, the skipping will be quite noticeable after that, right? So if, if you're worried about getting lost in Leviticus, you don't have to worry about that. The goal is for us to see the meta-narrative of Scripture, not necessarily all the fine details. Um, so we are, we are, finally, I can say we're almost done with Genesis, right? At least for about nine months. We'll, we'll go back to Genesis, but by then we've spent quite a bit of time in the rest of, of the Bible. Um, but I want to pick up where we left off Wednesday and uh, tonight and then Wednesday night, uh, look at the Joseph story. So I'm, I'm, I'm violating sort of my own rules here. Um, so this is really part one of the Joseph story, and we'll finish in the art together. Because the story of Joseph is meant to be read as a whole from chapter 37 to 50, um, and it's best to see it as that. So just for starters, just read chapter 37. Um, and we'll start in verse 18. So if you'll stand with me out of reverence for God's word. But again, we'll be trying to make our way through chapter 41. Moses writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 37, verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see... Uh, what will become of his dreams? But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their uh, hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Then he sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. His brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? They took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. And Joseph was without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Mennonites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guards. Good Lord in prayer. Our fathers, as, as we look at this incredible story of Joseph, of exile and exaltation, may you open our hearts and our minds and our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet, our entire being, that we... We are transformed by the gospel for your glory. And may we see Christ in the story of Joseph. May I decrease so that you can increase. Name yourself, we pray. Amen. Be seated.
Well, the main key to reading the story of Joseph, to pick up what it is we talked about Wednesday. And Wednesday, we, we did a broad overview of the theme of exile throughout the Bible, starting in uh, the garden, right, where, where Adam and Eve are exiled. And not only the exile from the garden, but them and their posterity are perpetually in exile. Uh, so everywhere you go, we encounter exiles. And then as the story of Abraham comes, because you have the exile of Cain and the exile of, of the Babylonians and all that. But by the time you get to, to Abraham and we start to see the unfolding drama of the people of God, uh, we see that the people of God are sojourners among exiles. And so we are, we are in search of a land that we have been promised, and we know that land will come. But in the meantime, we are sojourners, but we are not lost like an exile. And, and that theme is found throughout the Bible, and I won't rehash everything we looked at Wednesday night. But when you come to the story of Joseph, these, this, the, these themes all uh, find their fulfillment. And so there's two themes we're going to look at, as, and they are related together. The first we'll look at tonight, that is the story of exile. The second, we'll get hints of it, but of course will be fulfilled starting in chapter 42, we'll look at Wednesday night, is the story of exaltation. So as you read through and as we go through the story of Joseph, we're looking for those two themes, exile and exaltation. As we come to chapter 37, which I don't think was in your reading, but we're going to do it anyways because it's still inspired of God. And it's very important as it sets up everything in the Joseph story. But right from the beginning uh, of the story of Joseph, and this is the passage we read Wednesday night, we are given several interesting details uh, in the story. The first is, the, is in chapter 37, verse 1, and that is, we talked Wednesday night, Jacob is described as a sojourner. And by the end of the story, he is still a sojourner. In fact, uh, his, his children and great-grandchildren and all that are all in Egypt. They're not in the promised land, right? And that is, so, so the story of Genesis ends with the promise made to Abraham still unfulfilled. Exodus begins with the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still unfulfilled. The second thing to note is in verse 2, and that is that Jacob and his sons were uh, or Joseph in particular were shepherds. So verse two, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph being 17 years old was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He's a shepherd. Now consider who it is that is a shepherd in uh, Genesis and what happens to each and every one of them. Uh, Jacob is a shepherd and he has division with his brother. Abraham was a shepherd, and he divides from nephew his his lot, his nephew, over the increase of their flock. Cain was a shepherd, and he literally is divided from his brother uh, whenever he kills him. So already we we are told uh, Joseph and his brothers are shepherds. Oh no, they are country boys living out in rural America and. And a country song is going to be written about their childhood. That's basically what we are being warned of here, right? And, and so, um, and then the third thing to note is in verse 3 to 4, and that is Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. Notice now Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. He made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that his father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. This, again, is a theme that runs throughout Genesis. Loving one family member, a child or a spouse in particular, 
is another cycle we see over and over in Genesis. Remember that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And because he loved his first, well, his second wife, I guess it would technically be, but because he loved Rachel, one wife over the other, it means he loved her children more than the children of the other wife. So Joseph is seen here as the firstborn, even though he is not the firstborn. So he is treated with preeminence reserved for the firstborn, even though he's not the firstborn. And don't forget that it was Jacob's parents each had their own favorite. Isaac liked Esau because he was a man's man. Harry, not fully evolved, all that sort of stuff. Rebecca, on the other hand, favored uh, Jacob because uh, he was into um, uh, less rough stuff, right? Uh, less stereotypical male, we, we, we could say. And so uh, she favored her, her little baby boy, and the father favored uh, the older son, who was a starting linebacker at the local high school. Um, and, in fact, that phrase, you see there, son of his old age, is the same language used to describe Isaac uh, to Abraham, right? You will have a son in your old age. This is the son of your old age, right? So, so, this, this, so the writers reminded us of all these stories, and so we know exactly where this is going to go. Joseph is portrayed here as a spoiled brat, and that is what he is. I mean, he, he shows up. He's like, hey, guys, I had this wildest dream. Let's see if you guys can guess what it means, okay? You are all bowing down to me. Can anyone guess what the interpretation of this dream is, right? Now, what's interesting is he's never described as being good or bad. He, he, and the language suggests it's, it's more of folly than anything. He's a foolish 17-year-old boy who is full of himself and thinks because he's daddy's favorite, he's entitled to certain things. In fact, you'll notice that he isn't the one out in the field. He's described as a shepherd, but he is sent by his father into the field where his brothers are keeping uh, watch of the flock by night, if, if you want to put it that way. So he is favored. And so the writer is preparing us that this is going to be a troubling story. And what you get from Genesis 37 to 41 is a pattern of Joseph rising, only to fall, only to rise again, but to fall even lower. This is the pattern. So we have, we have what looks like exaltation, and that exaltation will be the source of great exile. And then we have what looks like exaltation again, only for it to look like greater exile. And so the pattern will continue. In verses 5 and 11, no one spent forever on this, we, of chapter 37, we see Joseph's dreams. This is his first rise, right? And throughout the Joseph story, dreams, we'll see uh, three sets of those t- today, Lord willing. Um, dreams play an important role in the story, and they always come in twos. Joseph has two dreams here, and then the, uh, uh, he'll, he'll have two people in prison uh, have two dreams, and then Pharaoh will have two dreams. So three sets of two. Um, and uh, verse 7 and 8, you get the first dream. It's about wheat. Verses 9 to 11, I want to spend a little bit more time on. This is where he sees the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars, uh, and, and the, they're, they're bowing down to him. And he's like, huh, what do you guys think this stuff means, right? And, and it's very obvious what, what it means. However, note this, the phrase, the sun, the moon, and the stars, the last time that language was used in Genesis was in Genesis chapter 1. God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day, lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. 
So this is the first reference to those cosmic bodies. And notice there that the sun, moon, and stars rule the heavens day and night. Humans are to rule the earth day and night. What is Joseph claiming for himself? He's been embodied as the sun, moon, and stars to rule not just the earth, but the heavens itself. You probably had a brother or sister like this, and if you can't think of who they were, it was probably you, okay? You just need to know that. It might have been you. I'll ask your brother and sister and parents and that first cousin of yours which, which one it was. Um, and so uh, in, in Genesis, mankind, again, is to rule the night. And so he, he is... He is called, he sees himself as a type of king. And here he is, just a little shepherd boy, a sojourner out in the middle of nowhere. No wonder they hate him even more. And so that exaltation where he's second in command to daddy, right? Uh, he, you know, his, his dad gives him all the, the cool jobs. And uh, by the way, when he goes out to see his brothers, that story is repeated in the story of David. When Jesse sends David, a shepherd, out to check on his brothers who are at war. They're out in the field ready to fight a giant. You know? and that's hyperlinked over. That's, that's free. That's not in my notes. Um, but here, so we saw his exaltation. Now comes his exile, 12 to 37. Um, and this story um, is, again, picks up on previous stories. Everything you see here, we've already seen once in the story of Joseph. For example, in verse 12, it describes Joseph's brothers as being out in the field. And when Joseph goes out in the field, he is nearly murdered. Can you think of a story in Genesis where a little brother goes out into the field and he is murdered? It's Cain and Abel. So you can get in Genesis 4.8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field. Right, same language used here. How, so they, they do initially agree to murder Joseph and, and then to deceive their father, saying that a fierce animal, to use the biblical language, killed, um, killed their brother. A couple of things to note here. First of all, Jacob's sons deceived their father. You remember what, what we did with Isaac, they like father, like son? Same thing as with Jacob and his boys, like, like father, like sons. Um, because remember that Jacob deceived his father Isaac by disguising himself with fur. And so he had to feel like his unevolved uh, brother, Harry and all. And, um, and so he, he disguises to deceive his, his father. What, what do the sons do here? They use animal, this, this time it's blood, but they use an animal to disguise the, the uh, robe of many colors in order to deceive their father. It's essentially the same story. Notice also that sin is blamed on an animal like in the story of Cain, right? But also in the story of Adam and Eve. You remember that Cain, God said, like, if, Cain, if you're not careful, sin is crouching at the door for you. That is, that is animal-like language. Um, and, and, and then in the story of, of Adam and Eve, what do they do? They blame their folly, their sin, on a serpent, here, the brothers are saying, our brother died or has gone missing, in truth, because of an animal. That, of course, is a lie. Adam and Eve did not sin because of an animal. They sinned because they choose, chose to sin. Right? So, too, they are wanting to blame an animal on something that they have done. And, and that, that relates to a third thing we need to see here. 
Sin throughout Genesis, as it does here, is related to animalistic behavior. Again, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So when Cain kills Abel, he is unlike the image bearer he's called to be, elevated, exalted, and rather he is, he is brought down to the level of an animal. After all, animals right now are not having this conversation when dinner is on the line. They're not. So too, when Cain is reasoning in his mind, should I kill my brother, and he chooses the path of murder, he becomes more like a wild animal than an image bearer of God called the rule. So too, the language of animals is again used of, of Adam and Eve and, and others. We could look at countless others. Meaning that sin dehumanizes us. It brings us down. I heard one person in, in the context of talking about how we should be liberated morally in our society. He said, I've noticed something strange about what we should be liberated to do is that everything they want us to do, you can enjoy just fine in a six by nine cell. Right? That's not liberation. It's not true liberation. Sin never elevates the sinner. Now notice that instead of killing him, they spare his life, and they do it for greed, of course. You'll see in the story, I think it's verse 26, you'll see that. But, but they throw him down in a pit. Some of your translation may say cistern, but, but it, it's, it's a pit, right? It's a pit without water. There's no water down there. This word pit is a very important word uh, in the biblical, uh, um, the Bible as a whole. Uh, and I think it's first used here. I could be wrong on that. Um, but... In, so it's true not only just in the Joseph story, but in the Bible. It is often the word used to use as a metaphor to describe death and the grave. Can I give you just three examples? I could give you dozens. Three examples. Psalm 30, uh, verse 3. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. This is the beauty of Hebrew poetry's parallelism. And so if there's, if there's a question about interpreting one word, well, he's already given you the interpretation before. So Sheol is the word generically for grave. It's more complicated than that, but we're going to stick with grave for now. So notice there that uh, you've brought me up from Sheol. And then he talks about being down in the pit. The pit and Sheol are synonyms here. Death, the grave. Uh, Psalm 143, 7. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Again, a reference to death. Finally, Proverbs 1, 2. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. Again, Sheol and the pit are used there as synonyms. So this is, I know you're thinking, who cares? He's thrown into a cistern, who cares? It, it will matter because the word pit will continually be used throughout the Joseph narrative. And this is the first one. It's not the last pit he finds himself in. And so we need to see this exile is death-like. It's a type of death. After all, his life as a, as a shepherd, as a favored son of a shepherd, is now over with. He is going into exile into the pits. Then he will be sent into exile down to Egypt. So, um, so what do they do? They, 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 they strip him, verse 21 24, they strip him of his coat of many colors. Thus they dethrone him. They throw him into the pit. Uh, and verse 25 to 28, 
he is sold to the Ishmaelites. Now, this is human trafficking, right? And, and their motivation is greed. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, is, is that the Ishmaelites, remember, are cousins. Uh, their great-grandfather uh, was brothers with the Ishmaelites' great-grandfather. They're cousins. I don't know how that breaks down in terms of how they're related in Kentucky, but, but, but they, they are related. And in fact, they're called Medianites as well which is, is connected to Abraham uh, with, with his other wives. So, so these are cousins, and here they're using each other for their own benefit. They want to get rid of Joseph, whereas the Ishmaelites want to profit. And notice in verse 28, this phrase we're going to come across a thousand times, Joseph goes down into Egypt. Your English may have simplified it, but in the Hebrew, because this phrase is used a thousand times in these 13 chapters, to go down into Egypt. And now that, that's a geographical reason for that. Jerusalem is set on top of a, a type of mountain, a hill, right? So you have to go up to Jerusalem. You'll see that in the New Testament all the time. And so if you go from Canaan to Egypt, it's largely downhill. But if you were to go from Egypt to Canaan, you're going uphill. I remember one time I went back to Breck County to do a youth camp several years ago, pre, pre-COVID. And uh, right where we were staying was near the church I had served at previously. And I wanted to go run. I was going to do five miles. And let me tell you, I, I, I was like three miles into it. And I hadn't turned around yet because, man, it felt so good. I could run forever. And then I turned around to look at the road. And it did, when you're going down, it didn't look like you were going down. The, the, the incline was very slight. But when you turn around, you could see the incline a little better. I did not finish running without stopping right back, right? So, so my six miles was not a straight running six miles. And the same, this was geographical stuff. But also this, this, this plays with the exile exaltation motif. He goes down into the pit, and then he goes farther down into Egypt. So not just geographically, but in terms of a, a literary device. Now, Jacob's response is quite extreme. Um, he experiences grief. Notice, in fact, he says, he shall go down to the grave. Interesting, isn't it? Because that's where Joseph was. He shall go down to Sheol. He doesn't want to be comforted. He just wants to die. He wants to join with his son, which is interesting because many people try to suggest that the ancient Hebrews did not have a clear view of, of life after death. What's Jacob talking about here? He wants to go to the grave because that's where his son is. Right? It's not very comforting to say, well, I'd like to rot in the ground like my friend here. No, no, no. He's saying, if I go into the grave, there I will physically be with my son. Right? So, so he wants to go into the pit. Joseph is in the pit. Jacob wants to go in the pit, and which means Jacob chooses for himself exile. Death is the ultimate exile in the story. So, um, Meanwhile, verse 36, Joseph is sold to Potiphar, a high-ranking official in Egypt. So he has gone farther down, out of the promised land. He is exiled like Adam and Eve before him, taken out of the land of promise. Well, for the sake of time, uh, let's skip over to chapter 39. Chapter 38 is it, it's a distraction from this with Judah and Tamar. You can read that at your own risk. But, but um, chapter 39, we, we, we see these themes of, ex, of, of, of the rise and fall of, of Joseph, right? So verses 1 to 6, Joseph is uh, in the house of Potiphar. And even though he's a slave, he becomes a high-ranking slave. And with that does come some, some benefits. So just as he was second in command to Jacob, now he's second in command to Potiphar. And he is a man of great skill and giftedness. 
Um, but notice the language, verse, chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. You see it there? And that phrase is going to be used over and over again. To Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from, or bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. So Jacob, or Joseph, is going down. He's in exile. But he makes the most of it, of course. Um, and the text tells us God is with Joseph the slave. And as a result, in his exile, he is lifted up. He becomes second in command, um, and he becomes an overseer of Potiphar's house. Well, that exaltation is short-lived. It then leads to greater exile. You know the story, so I don't want to spend forever on all the details. Um, he is given authority over everything in Potiphar's house except one thing. Now, can you think of a story in Genesis where a man, and let's say a man and a woman, had access to everything that, that someone else owned? except one thing. And they chose that one thing, like Dennis the Menace and do not touch this button sort of thing, right? What is different about Joseph is the one thing he does not have access to, he chooses not to eat of its fruits. But despite that, he is still exiled. And the language is taken right from... Um, the, the Genesis 3 story. Um, notice uh, verse 10. As, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. What, was, what, what is it that we found in, in the garden? You listened to the voice of your wife. What was the problem with Abraham with Hagar? He listened to the voice of his wife. What did Joseph decide to do? He did not listen to the voice of Potiphar's wife. Yet despite that, what happens? He is derobed again. She, she reaches out to grab him. As a result, he, he says, I'd rather flee without, without this, this nicer garment that shows my, my prominence, my exaltation. I'd rather protect my integrity. And as a result, she uses that to lead him to greater exile. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what his brothers did. It's the same story all over again. So this exile is sent into greater exile. And so he is thrown into prison. That's what you get in verse 7 all the way down to verse 23. And what's interesting is Joseph describes prison as a pit. If, uh, this is actually in chapter 40 where you see this uh, clearly stated. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. Now, pause there. Notice, what does the Bible think of slavery? It is a violation of the Ten Commandments. You're stealing humans. Remember that next time someone says, well, the Bible isn't even against slavery. Joseph was. He hadn't even read the Ten Commandments yet. Nevertheless, I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into prison. You can translate that prison. It would be a perfectly fine translation of your Bible, but the literal reading is they have put me into the pit. So Jacob's or Joseph's brothers throw him into a pit. Potiphar puts him in a pit. In neither instance does Joseph do anything wrong. Nevertheless, he goes down into exile. 
Well, this is a far cry from those early dreams, isn't it? He goes down. But despite being in prison, what happens to Joseph? The Lord shows him favor. So much so, he becomes second in command to the prison guard, which means he has access and authority over everything in the prison. I don't know what that looks like. But he is exalted in his exile, like he did with Jacob, like he did with Potiphar, now with the main guard. But this is a far cry from those early dreams. Being the chief prisoner, which is a strange term, is not exactly a fulfillment of those early dreams. No one is bowing down to the ex-slave prisoner. He keeps going down in Egypt. Well, we turn to chapter 40. And while in prison, he gets an opportunity to interpret two dreams. So we had the first set. Here's the second set. And on the same night, Pharaoh's cupbaker, his chief cupbearer, and his chief baker have crazy dreams. And both dreams have the same theme. And the theme is lifting up. Now, so far in this story, that's what we want to see happen to Joseph, exaltation. But he's been torn down. But these dreams have the meaning of the lifting of the head. Okay? So for the cupbearer, the interpretation, that's verse 9 to 15 in chapter 40. The interpretation is that in three days, there's that time frame. Boy, the more I read the Bible, the more I see three days just popping off the page. In three days, the cupbearer will have his head lifted up. That is, he will be restored to his previous position. He'll be lifted up. He'll be picked up. The baker, in three days, will have his head lifted up in the sense that he will be hanged. Right, so, so you see very similar interpretations, but two very different conclusions. But both have to do with a type of exaltation. One is a good exaltation. The other is a more permanent one, I guess you can say. Um, and that's exactly what happened. The cupbearer is, is uh, restored. The baker is executed. And so what does Joseph do? He, he does what all of us would do. He'd say, hey, <laughs> when you're back with Pharaoh... Please tell him about my case. I can't find a good lawyer. And I'm just rotting down in this pit. I'm lower than a slave now. And what happens is he forgot about Joseph. Now, if I could add just, just a quick little point of application that we'll probably come back to later, if not today, next time, is that this pattern of forgetting about Joseph, his brothers forget about him, the Ishmaelites and Midianites forget about him. Potiphar has forgotten about him. The cup pair has forgotten about him. But God hasn't. Even in the midst of his suffering, God is still with Joseph. And don't miss that. Though he is suffering in exile, he has not been abandoned. And so, of course, as we said, this is a story of exile. Every time he is exalted, he is brought farther down. Um, and in this sense, he embodies both the cupbearer and that he's been lifted up. He's the second in command. But at the same time, he, he embodies the baker in that he's been torn down. 
And that brings us finally to chapter 41. It opens with another set of dreams. Except not with two people, but one person has two dreams, just like Joseph was one person who had two dreams in chapter 37. And this time it is Pharaoh. And I don't want to go into all the details of it, but just note that uh, the first dream has 14 cows. Seven are um, well-fed, seven are starving. And the seven starving cows consume the seven um, uh, American cows that, that have overeaten. And, and, and yet they are still starving, right? They, they, haven't, they haven't gotten their full. Same thing with the uh, grain. There's 14. Uh, that number 14 is important. It's two, two, as a set of seven, right? Um, and so that, of course, plays an important role in Jewish religion. And what happens is a Pharaoh wakes up from these dreams, and all the king's horses and all the king's men cannot interpret them for him. So he, he's starting to wonder, well, what am I going to do with this? There's, there's something prophetic in these dreams. And then we, just, we find out the cupbearer remembers suddenly, oh, yeah, there's this guy who interpreted my dreams. Maybe he can help you. Right? And that's exactly what happens. And verses 9 to 36 is, is really fascinating uh, what happens here. Joseph is summoned to interpret the dreams. Notice a couple of things, particularly in verse 14. This is chapter 41. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. You see, you see it there? So it isn't just chapter 40, prison referred to as a pit, it's chapter 41. So, so what is it we have? We have Joseph at his very lowest, forgotten by everyone, down in the pit. He is now brought out of the pit. He is lifted up, much like it was with the cupbearer. He is lifted up out of the pit to be brought before a Pharaoh. And then notice in verse 14, when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Now, when was the last time we saw Joseph do this? So far in the story, this is the beginning of his exaltation. So that's why we won't go past chapter 41. So far in the story, we've seen Joseph uh, derobed on multiple occasions. We have not seen Joseph clothed again. So we see, and and this this will really be be made more evident later, but but, um, this is the first hint that he is being restored. He is finally being exalted. He is shaved He is clothed. And so he interprets the dreams, verses 25 to 32. And the dreams are, 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 the two dreams have the same interpretation. That is that what is coming is seven years of plenty. We're gonna have an abundance of food. We we, we could eat and eat and eat and still not, not consume it all, right? And then that is followed by seven years of famine, which means this is yet another reference in Genesis to famine in Canaan food in Egypt. You remember Abraham fled Canaan? He went down into Egypt. Isaac, we saw last Sunday night, was tempted to leave Canaan to go down into Egypt. What's going to happen to Joseph's family? They're going to do exactly what their great-grandfather did and that they're going to leave Canaan, Canaan to go down into Egypt where there's food. And the means by which food was preserved is going to come through Joseph. So there are seven good years followed by seven bad years. And, and that's the interpretation of, of the dreams. So, so knowing what's going to happen is one thing. Being prepared for it is yet another. So, so, so Jake, Joseph says, look, you've got to get someone with good administrative skills who, who can organize this. I mean, 
QuickBooks might be helpful, but that's not going to be a good enough plan for this. This is going to be complicated, right? And we all know a good government program is easy to come by. I mean, they're in abundance these days. And, and so you got to figure this out. And so Egypt or the Pharaoh says, well, I know just the guy. How about you? And um, I, I believe actually, um, uh, yeah, uh, his exaltation begins in, in verse 37. Notice how it starts. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? I wish we had time for this. The spirit of God has largely been ignored um, since uh, the story of Abraham, I think. Um, I didn't put in my notes because I didn't want to go into this. Here I am going into it. But there's been this, this clear absence of, of God's spirit in the narrative. It just hasn't been referenced. Then all of a sudden with Joseph, it just pops up again. Pharaoh's looking for someone with the spirit of, of God. Um, and then Pharaoh says, since God, notice monotheistic, God has shown this to you. Um, there is none so discerning and wise as you are, which is the gift that God had intended to give Adam and Eve. Had they eaten of the tree of life, not the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right? They weren't ready for the tree of good and evil because they lacked wisdom. This is a theme that runs throughout the Bible, particularly in, in Proverbs. Well, this, of course, is the turning point of the story. Um, it has been a story of exile that will mirror the story of Israel. Um, so Joseph has gone down to Egypt, much like Israel will go down into Egypt, but then they will find their exaltation. So the Israelites will, will be fruitful, multiply, and what will happen is they will be turned into slaves. It's a repeat of the story of Joseph you get in Israel. Joseph will later, uh, his bones will be taken out of, uh, or particularly Jacob will be taken out of, of Egypt. So too his descendants will be taken out of Egypt for the promised land. But nevertheless, um, we see that after a long period of suffering in exile, we see God exalting his suffering servants. So, I want to pause there. Wednesday night, we'll look at the story of exaltation for Joseph. And I really want to make some Christological connections when we get to the end of the story of Joseph. So keep reading through the Genesis story this week, and we'll look at it in some detail Wednesday. In the meantime, I want to offer just three points of application from what we've seen thus far in the story of, of Joseph. The first is that exile does not mean abandonment. Throughout the Bible, the people of God suffer and are exiled. I mean, this is the story of the Israelites, isn't it? From Adam to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph to the Exodus experience to the Syrian experience to the Philistine experiences to the Babylonian experience. At no point of such suffering and exile are the people of God abandoned by God. In fact, Jeremiah is interesting. Jeremiah comes and says, look, it's going to happen, right? It's going to happen. Y'all are going to be taken over by Babylonians. But wherever Nebuchadnezzar sends you, this is what you do. Because even in exile, you are still the, you're still the people of God. Remember what he says? Build homes, marry, have children, and die to the glory of God. Our mission hasn't really changed all that much, has it? Remember, we are sojourners among exiles. This isn't our home. 
So, get married, have children, pursue Jesus, and die to the glory of God. It's not much more complicated than that. But at no point are the people of God ever abandoned. Remember that this is the lesson Isaac had learned we looked at last week. In Genesis 26, 24, the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. You remember that Isaac wants to leave the famine for Egypt. And God says, no, 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 you need to know, even in the middle of famine, I'm still with you. And Isaac experiences the blessing of God in that he has like, was a hundredfold of his grain? But so he's kicked out from one town to another, from one well to another. And at no point has God abandoned him. This is where, where I get really frustrated with American evangelicals is we think one bad day, we are an ingrown toenail away from people thinking God has abandoned us. It really is sad how easy we feel like God doesn't love us anymore. At no point in the Bible are the people of God abandoned by God. And Joseph can, can confess that. He will say that as much. By the end of the story, he says... You think you were getting rid of me, but God sent me ahead of you. Now, it took him years to figure that out, of course. He's not down there in the dungeon thinking, I am exactly where God wants me to be, right? That's not how it usually works. But he came to realize these experiences I had, often under duress, no one wants to be a slave, no one wants to be a prisoner, but the experiences he had through there prepared him for the task that God would give him for the good of other people. Exile does not mean abandonment. And Joseph discovers this. So in Genesis 39, 21, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. That is a covenantal love. And gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the pit, right? It's the prison. So God is with his people even in the midst of the pit. And remember, the pit is a picture of death. I wish I could think of a story where someone really important died and God's presence was made evident and that that grave did not stick around for very long. Can you think of a story? Jonah. It's Jonah. Yo, you stole my joke. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's Jesus, obviously. But, but Jonah, his story, he, he says in his psalm, and Jonah too is, I've gone down in the Sheol and you were there. That's Joseph's story, yeah. Who, Jonah? Down, down in, into the bottom of the Riffner? I'll deal with you later. <laughs> the challenge, however, is to discover God's presence and love in those moments of exile. That's the challenge. It's not if God is with us. How is God with us? And will we find him there? It's the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? That Jesus entered into that pit for us and with us. Well, secondly, we've we got to move on. Uh, faith requires much patience. Boy, we Americans need to learn this, don't we? Joseph wasn't a slave for a day or two, but for years. Years. He thought working for the state was bad. He wasn't a prisoner for a day or two, but for years. And at no point did it seem as if freedom was on the horizon. You talk to prisoners all the time, and they'll say, the worst thing you can do in prison is get hope. You just have to accept this is your lot in life, and that's not going to change. You can see Joseph, can't you? He interprets the dream for the cupbearer, and he says, don't forget about me. You can see him every night. 
thinking, tomorrow Pharaoh will come get me. Tomorrow the cupbearer will remember me. And it didn't come. For years it didn't come. Until when he least expected it, Pharaoh providentially had some bad dreams. Faith requires a lot of patience. In Genesis, not to mention the whole Bible, faith and patience are hand in glove. Patience will test your faith and faith will inform your patience. And you have to have both. Abraham will die believing the promise that God did not give to him. That he would have land and that he would have an abundance of sons that turn into nations. He dies not seeing an ounce of it. So does Isaac. So does Jacob. Jacob has to put in his will, don't bury my heart and wounded knee. Take me to Canaan. I don't belong here. So they have to travel all the way back and bury him there. Why? And, and, and it's not even their land. They're still sojourners. Faith requires patience. Are you willing to live by faith without seeing an ounce of prayer answered in this generation? The decisions you make, the people you love, and everything you do will have effects for generations to come. And you may never see it this side of glory. Faith requires much patience. Let's move on thirdly. Choose righteousness when sinned against. Actually, we could add this choose righteousness, period. Let's be honest. If, if you were all alone and you were sent to a foreign land, would you be the same person that you are now around people that you've grown up with and love and are accountable to? Most people would not. Can I prove it to you? Most high schoolers do it when they get to college, as did many of you. Joseph chose righteousness, period. He especially chose righteousness when he was sinned against. What Potiphar's wife did was evil. The straight up evil. What Joseph's brothers did to him was evil. And there's no getting around it. And yet, he chose the road of righteousness. In a fight, didn't scream, didn't demand his rights, didn't tear down their reputation, didn't come back with the bigger army. No, he, he responded with righteousness. It's easy for us to justify unrighteousness whenever we are sinned against. And that is not what Joseph did. Would you in his shoes pick either pit, the one out in the field, the one in Potiphar's household, or the one in the prison? How would you respond? With grace, mercy, patience, kindness, and love? I hope so. All too often, we will allow our personal wounds to be the justification for sin. That is not the road that Joseph chose. So even in his exile, he is the exalted child of God. And no brother, no Egyptian would take that away from him. And as we'll see, Lord willing, Wednesday night, God exalts him as a suffering servant. And I wish I could think of another story very similar to that. We'll see it Wednesday night. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Our Father, we ask that you would be kind to us as... Uh, we contemplate these things, that we are sojourners in the land of exiles. And we are looking for a forever home that is better than this world. 